Good evening. Show me your Bibles to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 27. And I want to read beginning in verse 41. Genesis 27, beginning in verse 41. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessings his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. When Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, Your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Aaron. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I am disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from the Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Paden Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of people. May he give you and your descendants the blessing of Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way and he went to Paden Aram to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Armenian, the brother of Rebekah, who was mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him to pay Adam to take a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and gone to Paden Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac, so he went to Ishmael and married Mahalathah, daughter, sister of Nebath, the daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. There is a painting that I'm sure all of you have seen. The painting shows two men, a father and son, sitting side by side on a running board of an old pickup truck. The father is dressed in work clothes. He has his hat in his hand, and he looks tired, and he looks worn. And as he sits beside his son, he's looking back away from the son. The son is dressed in his Sunday vest. He's wearing a suit with matching tie and matching socks, polished dress shoes. And if you look carefully, in the pocket of his jacket, he has a train ticket. He has a suitcase, and on the suitcase is a college pennant and a pile of books. And he's looking the opposite direction from the direction his father is looking in. He is looking forward. And where his father's face is a picture of weariness, the son's is a picture of eager anticipation. If you look at the son, you'll notice that his neck is stuck up high so that he can look over his father's head. His eyebrows are raised. 
He has a big smile as he looks for the train to come in. At the son's knees sits a dog with his head resting on the son's knees, and the dog, if it's imaginable, looks just as sad as the father. Well, Norman Rockwell painted that picture. It was painted for the September 25, 1954, Saturday Evening Post. It's called Breaking Ties with Home, and I know some of you have smartphones and pads if you want to see it. You can, you can look at it. It is one of the most popular of all of Rockwell's paintings. And of all of his paintings, it has been reproduced more often than all of the rest. It's quite valuable. The first time it was sold, it was sold for $900. The last time it was sold, it was sold for $15 million. Like the rest of his paintings, Breaking Ties captures one of those everyday moments. One of those moments, though, that have a poignancy about them poignancy about a moment in life, a father who doesn't want to let a son go, and a son who can't wait any longer to go because life is waiting for him down the road. As I sat and looked at the picture, as I thought about what was going on in it, it seemed to me that if we thought about it, we could be both figures. The father not wanting the son to leave and the son not waiting to leave. And maybe in your life you've already been both of them. Whatever our experience, leaving home can be an experience that produces mixed feelings. There's security and comfort in remaining at home, but sometimes leaving home opens doors that we never anticipated opening for us. Sometimes it means that our lives are moving forward. So this evening we're going to look at a passage in which we see a young man leaving home. And in his leaving home, he finds some great blessings because he found God and he found grace. And I want us to look at the passage that comes next in Genesis, chapter 28, verse 10 through 22. The young man, of course, is Jacob, and this details his flight from home to get away from Esau. Genesis 28, verse 10, says that Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, There's a lot packed into those eight words. Beersheba, of course, was Isaac's home in the hill country in the southern part of the promised land. And Haran was a long ways away. It was more than 400 miles north and east in what we would think of as northern Iraq today. When Jacob leaves Beersheba, he was leaving a painful and what we would assuredly say was a dysfunctional home life. Without a doubt, much of the pain and dysfunction was caused by Jacob himself. Even in the womb and at birth, he was at odds with his brother Esau, according to Genesis 25, verses 19 to 26. Isaac loved Esau, while Jacob was the favorite of their mother, Rebekah, which also set the stage for the conflict that they experienced. Even Jacob's name adds to that because the name Jacob means deceiver and he lived up to his name. In our terminology, we would say that he was a con artist, that he was good at pulling things on people. With a bowl of lentil soup, he stole his brother's birthright. With a bowl of stew and help from his equally deceitful mother, he stole the blessing that Isaac had planned to give Esau. So we shouldn't be surprised to learn in chapter 27 and verse 41 that Esau hates his brother Jacob. 
or that he plans to kill Jacob as soon as Isaac has died. And we shouldn't be surprised at all at the way Rebecca cons Isaac into sending Jacob away. She really pulls one on Isaac, doesn't she? In 2746, she so much as says to Isaac, if Jacob marries a Hittite woman, you might as well just bury me. That's how serious she is about getting her son out of harm's way. And I just sort of feel sorry for Isaac. I mean, he's kind of the dupe in all of this. And in the end, he can't get his youngest son out of Beersheba soon enough. Now, does that sound like the kind of home life you would enjoy? Everybody's out to get somebody. Everybody is lying to somebody. Young Jacob's life begins in a great way, doesn't it? But you know what we're about to find out? We're about to find out that despite all of those things, God's grace is with Jacob. What Jacob did to his father and his brother does not cause God to withdraw his favor or his love from Jacob. Yes, God loved Jacob, but he didn't love him because of who Jacob was, nor was it because Jacob was just somehow lovable. God loved Jacob because of who God is. As the scripture affirms over and over again, God in his sovereignty made a choice, and his choice was to love Jacob and hate Esau. We even find that as late as the book of Malachi at the end of the Old Testament time. When we belong to God, he doesn't throw us away when we make mistakes. He doesn't cut us off when we sin, but he keeps on loving us and forgiving us through the sacrifice of Jesus. Again, as the scripture affirms, our God is rich in patience and mercy and love and kindness and forgiveness. But Jacob's leaving home provides him with an opportunity to learn that. Look at verse 11 and 12. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with his top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So he leaves home, he heads to Haran, and he leaves with the knowledge that everything that his father has is his. And he even has his father's blessing, and his mama's pride and joy. So now he's on his way, he's going to find a wife. How can life be much better than that? When we read this about Jacob, I can't help but think that we see just something of the shadow of the prodigal son that Jesus will tell about someday. So he's on the road. He's making this journey, and the sun begins to set, and the night falls, and so he decides to stop for the night. He takes a stone, and he uses it for a pillow, and he lays down to go to sleep. How do you think Jacob sleeps? Does he lay there awake thinking about home, missing the people at home? Does he lay there feeling guilty, having a guilty conscience that's keeping him awake? Is Jacob tormented by conscience-stricken dreams over the havoc that he has caused and the injury that he has caused to his brother? No. As one writer describes him, he drops off to sleep like a baby in a cradle and dreams the kind of dreams you would have thought reserved for an exceptionally holy person. 
Well, as he dreams, we're told that he sees a broad ladder or a staircase appearing before him. And it's not an ordinary stairway. It stretches from earth to heaven. And on the stairs, he sees the angels of God ascending and descending, coming and going. They're God's messengers. And Jacob is allowed to see them about their work. But at the very top of the stairs stands the Lord himself. We don't know how the Lord revealed himself so Jacob could see him, but the point is Jacob does see him in some fashion. The angels continue to go up and down, but notice that none of them approach Jacob. None of them have a word for him. No heavenly messenger comes. But instead, God himself speaks to Jacob in verse 13. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Same God that spoke to Abraham and called him to leave his home and go to a place he would show him. The same God who spoke to Isaac and gave him the promises that he made to Abraham. And now the same God makes the same promises to Jacob. Look at verse 14. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. All the people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. He may be a liar and a thief as a young man, and his greatest skill in life may be that of conning people. But you know, God is just starting with Jacob. If you read the Bible from beginning to end, God always seems to have this way of preferring to work with raw materials, to start from scratch, to accomplish his purpose in people's lives. So as he begins his work, he tells Jacob that he has a place in his plans. He doesn't explain everything, but Jacob has a role to play in God's plan for redeeming mankind. He tells him that everyone in the world will be blessed through him and through his children. In time, from Jacob and his descendants, Jesus the Savior will come into the world. And by obedient faith in Jesus, Paul tells us in Galatians that we have become children of Jacob's and Isaac's and Abraham's. We are within God's salvation purposes. We are heirs of the promises made to them. And someday we will climb Jacob's ladder and be with God always because God has been and continues to be gracious to us. Not only do we have salvation but we also have a way to overcome our sin and to live in fellowship with God in the light. Jacob himself is going to know fellowship with God. I-57, Interstate 57, runs along the eastern border of Illinois from Chicago to Cairo, Illinois, in the south. And that is one long stretch of highway. If you've ever driven it, you might know that there are very few towns along the way. There are great stretches in which there's either farmland or woods on either side. It's a lonely road, and you begin to wonder if you'll ever get to the end of it. I've made the trip both ways by myself several times, and I don't like to go that way. Well, Jacob has a long journey ahead of him. It's not a short trip from Beersheba to Haran. And as far as our count reveals, he is alone. 
But God says to him in verse 15, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So Jacob is not going to travel alone because God is going to journey with him. He's going to go with him to his destination, and God promises that he'll bring him back. And so they go north through the land of the Canaanites to the city of Damascus, and from Damascus to the region of the northern Tigris and the Euphrates River to Haran. And all along the way, God watches over him. In fact, Jacob cannot go anywhere without God. And when he has found a wife and it's time to return home, God will make the return home with him back to the land of promise and back to his family. But notice verse 15 again, and notice the promise that's made at the very end of the verse. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God wasn't going with Jacob just to help him find a wife. But God is promising Jacob that he would be with him throughout his whole life. In fact, Jacob would die long, long before all of these promises would be fulfilled. Which means that all of Jacob's life would be lived in the shadow of the Almighty, in the presence of the Lord. In fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, Jesus will also have the name Emmanuel, which means God with us, Matthew 1, 23, and Isaiah 7, 14. Just as God promised Jacob that he would be with him wherever he went and would accomplish all that he promised, Jesus promised that he would be with his disciples to the end of the age. And that promise is still good to you and I. It is still good to us because we have not come to the end of the age. We continue to wait for his coming. And so Jesus continues to be with us. And not only that, but God can and will accomplish the good work that he has started in each of us. Paul promises the Philippians that if you look at chapter 1 and verse 6 of his letter to the Philippians. Like Jacob, our lives, for all of their shortcomings, for, for all their comings and going, for whatever good and evil comes our way, are lived in the shadow of the Almighty. And just as nothing could force God to abandon Jacob, Paul assures us in Romans 8.39 that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Well, at last Jacob awakens from his dream. He's still lying there on the ground, his head still pillowed on the stone. But Jacob is not the same man he was when he went to sleep. Jacob has changed. Jacob is different. He has a larger view of life than he had before. He has a larger view of God and an understanding of his relationship with God. He sees that there is someone greater than himself, someone that he must serve. And so he declares, verse 16, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And recognizing what this place is, he dedicates it. He dedicates it to God where he had this life-changing dream. So verse 18, 
Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on it, on top of it. He called the place Bethel through the city, though the city used to be called Luz. But Jacob doesn't just dedicate this place to God. Jacob dedicates himself to God. Verse 20, Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. Now, when you read that, you think, okay, here's the con man back again. He's thinking that he can bargain with God. But that really isn't the case because God already made these promises to Jacob. What Jacob is doing in verse 20 and 21 is simply affirming what God has said and accepting what God has offered him. He's giving God his statement, his understanding of what God has promised. If God goes with me, if God provides for me, if he brings me safely, then the Lord will be my God. He will see in those actions the truth that he belongs to God and God belongs to him. Notice that Jacob does not commit his way to God because his father Isaac had done so. And notice that he doesn't commit his way to God because grandfather Abraham had done so. Jacob is making his own journey of faith. This is his own encounter with God. And this is his own commitment to God. God has reached out to him and made Jacob his very own. And in response, Jacob promises to make God his own. In his amazement over his dream and what God has promised, Jacob sets up the stone and anoints it with oil. He names it Bethel. And the word Bethel means house of God. And Jacob makes the vow that he will honor Bethel. The house of God where he has seen God will always be a holy place, a sacred place. All the land of Canaan, God has promised to Jacob and his descendants. But this place, this Bethel, God, Jacob promises back to God a small portion of the land of promise to be sure, but the gift of Jacob to God nevertheless. And finally, Jacob vows that all that God gives him whether land or animals or servants or gold or wives or children or the crops of his field, a tenth of it he will give back to God. The very nature of God's grace is that it must be received as a gift. We can't earn his grace. We can't deserve his grace. We can't merit his grace. When you look at the life of Jacob, everyone understands that there is nothing about him that makes him worthy of God's favor. There are no compelling reasons that we can discern for God's kindness. And what could Jacob possibly do to earn God's promise that he would abide with him and watch over him? And what could Jacob do to deserve the promises of the land and the promise of descendants and the promise of God's abiding presence with him? Nothing. Nothing at all. And that's really close to us, isn't it? What can we do to earn the cross? What can we do to deserve the death that Jesus died on the cross in our behalf? What can, what is there about us that merits that loving favor? Again, we must answer nothing at all 
God's grace is always a gift. Salvation is never a work because if it was a work, we could brag about it. And God says more than once that He will not have that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, and Romans chapter 3. But Jacob's response to God's grace is also correct. The gift of God's grace always calls for a response. And in light of what God has done for him, Jacob makes the response, the only response that he can. And the only response is that he gives himself to God. In light of God's good gifts, in light of his promises, Jacob returns a portion of those gifts with thanksgiving. God gave us his perfect matchless grace and the gift of his son. And in gratitude for that gift, we say thank you. But we also say I give myself to you. We also say we will walk in the light with you. We promise that we will live a life of obedience. We commit ourselves to God in thanksgiving for all that He has and will do for us. We commit ourselves to the good works that He made for us, Ephesians made us for, Ephesians 2 and verse 10. Even our giving is an expression of our gratitude, our thanks for God's grace. Think about the cross and let your faith, your faithfulness, your obedience be the way in which you say thanks to God for His grace. Jacob left home and he left his old way of life. He left behind a life in which he only lived for himself. On leaving, he found God and a life of fellowship with Him. Jacob has a long way to go in his journey both to Haran and to being the man that God wants him to be. But God again promises that he will go all the way. In the same way, God is lovingly, tenderly calling us to leave our old life behind and to live a new life for Him. He invites each of us to journey with Him as He did Jacob, to journey with Him into His grace. If we've obeyed the Gospel, we have had the first taste of His grace. And daily, as we walk with Him and depend on Him, and are dependent on His care, we are together journeying into His grace. The destination of our journey in grace is ultimately heaven where the gates will open someday to receive us. We will arrive there someday and long last at journey's end. We will see Jesus. And not only see Jesus, but come into the presence of our Father. Wherever your journey of grace takes you this week, and pray that God will watch over you and keep you and bless you. Let's finish with our song of encouragement. Perhaps there's somebody in need of prayer tonight. And if you need prayer, or if there's any other way we can be of service, please come while we stand and sing.